It's autumn 1942, and a 56-year-old man has just escaped two years of Nazi incarceration and is now heading across the mountains to France. In his satchel, he carries a top-secret dossier detailing the dire state of Germany's economy. And in his head, he carries the evidence of her complicity in one of the worst crimes in human history. But he's also just hoodwinked one of the most powerful leaders in Hitler's Reich, and so there is a staggering price on his head. But he must not be caught. For more than the news he carries, it is in his very person that shell-shocked Europeans will one day find a bridge from which to escape the inevitability of a third world war. The unlikely and unsung hero who saved Europe is Robert Schumann, and this is his story. The Elysee Palace is the seat of the French government. I'm here today to see a special exhibition and to speak with the President of the National Assembly. It is extraordinary, the, no, not a single mention of Schumann, and yet Clemenceau is everywhere. And yet it was his insistence on German reparations which inflamed the worst aspects of German pride and nationalism and led to a second war. They should be celebrating the man who thought outside the box and brought the peace by doing the most unlikely of things, offering cooperation instead of competition to their enemies, offering forgiveness. But, you know, it's all Clemenceau here, all Clemenceau. Of course, it was not all Clemenceau's fault. For one thing, the Third French Republic actually voted him out of office for being too lenient. And for another, it was the short-sightedness of all key players that ensured, as Lloyd George observed, repeating the folly of World War I 25 years later at three times the cost. It was an ominous prediction that proved all but true as a corrupted Third Republic braced itself for German invasion. When I reminisced about these things with Nicholas Ferrand, the President of the National Assembly, his words were full of solidarity for Britain, and, as he finished, full of gratitude to France's greatest ally in its darkest hour. You can be sure that the French have not forgotten that, in the worst moments of our history, it was Winston Churchill who welcomed General de Gaulle and allowed the French to regain their freedom. So let us continue to follow this path. There is no reason to keep away from each other. The truth is, it would cost the British pretty much everything that they had in order for France to regain its freedom. But that is another story as we are following the one great unsung hero of the Third Republic, the man who likely saved us all from a Third World War. Robert Schumann, now 54, 
may well have been the first member of the French government to hear the news that Germany had invaded Belgium. He was working late on the night of the 10th of May 1940 in the Hotel Matignon, which is the prime ministerial residence, when the phone rang. The Nazis were coming, and what rang louder than the phone was the question that would haunt Robert Schumann and indeed every Frenchman. It was the moral dilemma that was so well expressed by the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who stands fast, he wrote, when evil is disguised as light, as historical necessity, as social justice? Before his own execution by the Nazis, he reached a surprising conclusion, writing, only the man whose final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, but who is ready to sacrifice all this when in relation to God alone, he is called to obedient and responsible action. As the Germans invaded France in 1940, and hundreds of thousands of Belgians and French fled west, the government was moved to Bordeaux, and Schumann was made Minister of Refugees. On the 10th of July, France surrendered, and the National Assembly voted in the Vichy regime under the Great War leader, Marshal Pétain. It seemed the best of worst alternatives, but Schumann chose political exile rather than take a position in the new authoritarian regime aligned with Nazi Germany. Having enjoyed a wide international correspondence in the interwar years, he knew that many of his friends could be incriminated if his letters were found unsorted in Metz. He decided to travel back to the occupied zone and to stay with his cousin Leon Schmidt, the priest who was soon to be expelled from Metz for resisting Nazi oppression during the rapid Germanification of the area. Come here really knowing the dangers, but knowing that if he did not clear his papers, other people would be incriminated. Schumann stayed in his house for three days sorting out his papers. It took him that long. He must get rid of any incriminating evidence. Eventually, he came to apply to the police for a permit to travel back into free France, become an exile. The Gestapo looked at his papers and arrested him for acts of resistance against the Germans. And he was brought here to the Rue Maurice Barret, and he was imprisoned for over 200 days in solitary confinement. I have the tendency to think that he came here. This is still a government building, and this is probably where he was held. You can see the bars on the windows. I don't know whether there's any cellars here. He was also interrogated. He refused positions to help the Nazis establish themselves. He would have been sent to a concentration camp without a doubt if it were not for his friends who said to the Gestapo, look, don't go turning the people against you by, by sending people like Schumann to the concentration camps. So it must have been a cold winter, but beyond every winter is a spring. And on Easter morning, the bells rang and Schumann was set free out of here. But out of the frying pan into the fire, he was taken to the Gauleiter's hometown of Neustadt. And there he would undergo 
perhaps greater trials, soft trials, would he give in where he had not given in because of the privations here? We shall see. Let's follow him. So strange that Schumann traveled this way on Easter Sunday morning. As the bells rang over Metz, he was released from his solitary confinement and brought up here to Neustadt as the personal guest of Gauleiter Berkel. And he chose to bring Schumann here to the Villa Burg. What he understood was that if he was going to have a man like Schumann on the side of the Nazis, he could not be broken by solitary confinement. He could not be broken the hard way. He had to be broken the soft way. And just like Schumann would not be part of the Vichy government, so he resisted and strung this vile nemesis, this pharaoh-like character. Uh, he strung him along. Not only that, though, if he was not going to give any information, maybe he was here by the hand of providence. Remember he once said, we are all imperfect instruments of providence. Or perhaps he was here to get information. After an honorable discharge in World War I, Berkel had been a head teacher in Speyer and a man who liked to indulge in the politics of envy. Like other former teachers, from Mussolini to Mao, Pinochet to Pol Pot, Berkel was not the last member of a resentful academy willing to unleash his inner dictator. To get a flavour of Berkel and his vision, I first called into his personal concentration camp on the outskirts of town. So this was a, a small um, concentration camp. It was run by Berkel. These doors, number 11. They hold, held the screams of how many people? I think this is uh, a list of the Jews, Hilda, Emily, Elias, Elias Ludwig, Adolf, Bortman, Melanie. Those lists of names, so particular, so tragic, put me immediately in mind of Berkel's much-imprisoned contemporary, the heroic chronicler of the socialist atrocities in Russia, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. In his uh, Gulag archipelago, talks about this, he says that it was only the contingent of history that made me the one in the cell and him having the gun. But I think that is wrong. I know he suffered terribly, as did Dostoevsky before him. But I think it is wrong because it denies freedom of action. Many have sunk beneath their education, their upbringing, their gentility, whatever. We are not just the sum total of our education. You know, that's. We must allow dignity and freedom to human beings. And what I mean is this, 
that if a man is, a woman is free, then they are accountable for their actions. But if we are to have a sane society, if we are to have democracy in that sense, then we must allow for radical human dignity. It is one of the ways that we should ensure that this does not happen again. Schumann, Ernst Schumann. Any other Schumanns in there? They keep a file on you. But Schumann wasn't held here. He was held at the Villa Bonn. So, we'll go to the Villa Bonn. Back up the road at the administrative headquarters for this gal, Schumann was about to give Burkle a four-month masterclass in political espionage. This is it. This is it here. Oh, Mr. Burkle, what a lovely house. So Schumann came to Neustadt. This building was the uh, for this uh, for this gal for this area this was the bureau this was the place to run from the gal leiter burkle and his family lived uh, just down below in the town in a place which is now a, a parking lot rather fittingly it was a house that stood on this spot right in the middle of neustadt that's Joseph Berkel. He's a man that made uh, Vienna tremble. He sent the Jews to the concentration camps. Uh, there's one with, uh, with Hitler. He was one of the chosen circle. In 1934, he was head of the Nazi party. So he's a real player, one of the 30 most powerful men in Germany. Very strange today that it's just a parking lot in the center of the town. People want to forget. Abigail Adams says that uh, great necessities call out great virtues. The necessities expose what is there. You know, few of us know what will be required of us most of the time our sacrifices are small and maybe they're the hardest ones small acts of self self-denial human when the time came exhibited this superhuman cool the last thing he probably ever thought was saving his own neck he wrote to a friend at this time I have not been and am not the unfortunate victim that you might think. And he wrote still later when under house arrest, I have found resistance easy, grace has not failed me, and I am never tempted under these pressures. And by grace he meant God's undeserved favour and divine strength. And he reasoned with his captors that he, he, he could not escape without papers. They didn't need to guard him so assiduously. And so he was allowed to go for little walks. And he always made sure that he was late. 
which of these rooms <laughs> did he uh, did he sleep in? He always made sure he was late, but he always made sure he was back, instinctively knowing when they would get worried, call the alarm, and so he wore them down until finally he did escape. What prompted his escape was two things. Number one, he was playing cat and mouse with Burkle. Burkle threatened him and said, listen, you give me something, or I'm gonna send you to Dachau. And Schumann says, yes, of course, you can send me to Dachau, but that's not an argument. He offered Schumann a job. Come and work in the Justice Department for this area. Schumann was like, oh, no, I could not. Or write an article for this prestigious Nazi magazine. Schumann, oh, I am too much out of touch with politics to do a good job for such a prestigious magazine. Well, give me some names. Tell me about your meeting in Cologne in 1932. Was Konrad Adenauer there? No, I never met Adenauer. Schumann gave them nothing, but he got a lot more that Burkle knew. His friend, Henry Eisenbach, gave him a copy of a top secret report, a meeting that they'd had in Karlsruhe with the Economic Committee, and it told of the difficulties of production in Germany, losses on the Eastern Front, the amount of men that were invalided, sick, disease. Schumann knew, using his statistician's brain, they could not last long. He also knew something else, and he must have found it out, perhaps in these halls, where many high-ranking Nazis must have come. He found this out that something was happening to the Jews. Someone must have bragged to him about the final solution. And he knew he must escape to bring that news. He would be killed if he was caught, but he would be killed if he stayed much longer. The game, it was getting hotter and hotter. He must have walked around the grounds, plotting and planning listening at the windows. Maybe it was here. Maybe it was on this balcony. Perhaps Schumann was standing under here, listening. Little did they know. They thought they had Schumann. How hard could it be? Burkle had broken bishops and archbishops back in Vienna when he had sent nearly 50,000 Jews to the concentration camps. How hard could it be to break a man like Schumann, pious Roman Catholic politician? He'd be putty in his hands. And yet, it was Schumann who had the last laugh. You know, see him now, Burkle smoking a cigarette, Schumann talking with him out here maybe, leaning up against here. Burkle is only maybe five feet, Schumann tall, meek. Burkle should have known, meek inherit the earth. 
was here for months. Until one August day, he decided he had all the information he needed. And he slipped away. He slipped away to Freiburg, supposedly on a particularly interesting um, bit of business. Slipped out of the front door, went to Freiburg, sent a message, I have been delayed in my travel. His captors, oh yeah, but he always comes, he always comes. It bought him three days head start and dressed as a hiker on a walking holiday down there, Mulhouse, Colmar, over the Vosges mountains, down to Bessancon. And so he escapes. He sowed uh, seeds with the other guys here that were prisoners. He said that uh, he, would, he would like to go to Switzerland that way. He did not go to Switzerland that way. He went the last place they were expecting that way. Burkle was apoplectic with rage. He put a price on Schumann's head, 100,000 Reichmarks. But no one betrayed him. Staying at monasteries up in the mountains like La Salette Favreau, staying with priests, friends he had known at Bourg-en-Bresse, and finally in an orphanage north of Bourg-en-Bresse, a place called Beaupont under assumed names, his mother's name, Duret, or under his name, Schumann, in a different language, Cordanier. Robert Schumann disappeared. Exactly how and where he survived off radar for so many years will be the subject of episode four, as we track Schumann through some of France's most stunning, iconic, and historic locations. But before leaving Neustadt, I wanted to find out what became of his evil nemesis, Joseph Burkle. I wanted to do this at his grave, which proved hard to find because the funerary monument had been moved from a place of prominence into a corner of a municipal graveyard. If you want a great leveller and a common humanity, well, you could say at least we can all agree that in death, by our last breath, what we have done will be judged by history. It's um, very sobering to be at Gauleiter Joseph Burkle's grave. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? He was not a mighty man. He was a nasty, racist, bully, cruel, avaricious. But, uh, let's read the story. I'm going to read to you from the first draft of uh, Saving Europe. Gauleiter Joseph Burkle died two years later, physically and mentally worn out, spending all of his time at work because of the deteriorating situation in his Gau, in his district. He suffered an inflammation of the intestine with diarrhea, eventually becoming too ill to continue. At the party funeral, the eulogy was given by Reichsleiter Rosenberg, who represented the Führer. The Gauleiter's coffin rested on a flower-strewn platform 
surrounded by black pillars and flags of the Gau. The honor guard consisted of leaders of the party and of the Wehrmacht. While Beethoven's Coriolanus Overture was played, the Führer's massive wreath of roses and white chrysanthemums was carried by two SS men. The family entered, greeted silently by the gathering. The Gauleiter's wife was accompanied by Reichsleiter Rosenberg. After the last chord was sounded, Reichsleiter Rosenberg, as the Führer's representative, delivered the memorial address. Joseph Berkel was a devoted nationalist and a passionate socialist. In all of his life, he symbolized the unity that, from the standpoint of our worldview, reflects outwardly the great inner experience, that great idea for which we fought. The Führer has authorized me, party comrade Berkel, to express to you his thanks for your complete loyalty to him and to the movement. More than ever before, the Führer remembers the loyal support of one of his oldest fellow fighters, who never grew weary during the years of struggle, who always followed the Führer and his banner. In particular recognition of this exemplary national socialist life, and as a continuing reminder for coming generations, the Führer awards you, Joseph Berkel, the highest level of the German order with swords. We now take leave of you. The flags of the great German Reich will flutter over your grave, and the soldiers of the German people will pass by you as they march west, where they will protect German territory and realize what you gave your whole life for. The party ceremony ended with a moving second movement of Beethoven's Heroica. On Wednesday morning, the mortal remains of Gauleiter Berkel were laid to rest in his native soil here in Neustadt Cemetery. Well, he was wrong, pure and simple. People did not march west. Great Germans saved their country from the insanity of the Nazi uprising and usurpation of democracy. Great Germans like Adenauer and many more. But they needed a head start. They needed an open hand from their worst enemy, France. France was not ready to extend a hand of friendship. They wanted reparations. It was gonna take a mighty miracle. A great leader takes a country, a people where it does not want to go, but where it should go. And Schumann was such a man. He would lead the initiative, the French, to reach out a hand to the Germans to welcome them back to the human race. And it would be these that would form the fulcrum to lever Europe out of the distress, the poverty, the warmongering. But that's another story. If you enjoyed this episode, then please show your appreciation with a comment and perhaps even subscribing to the channel. 
If you have questions, drop them below. And if you want to go deeper into the subject, then please check out the Saving Europe book and the other videos on the channel, especially the Book Distillery podcast, where me and my blue-collar scholar friends go deeper with top academic guests from around the world. So until next time, thanks for watching.